Hello, everybody. Welcome to Crystal Kylan, friends. Today, we're going to be talking to Ben Burgess, who's uh, he's a great left-wing professor, and um, he's he wrote a great article in the Daily Beast that just came out yep. about uh, Joe Rogan and and censorship and the left. Yep. And uh, he wrote podcast this hope also, podcast host also give them an argument and says podcast. That's right. Um, and he wrote a great book on Christopher Hitchens, who's a really fascinating character because he was, you know, sort of a an adamant and unapologetic socialist for much of his life. And then as he got older, when the war on terror happened, he did kind of a heel turn and he supported a lot of U.S. wars and interventions. And Ben maps like, well, how how exactly did this happen? That seems really weird. It seems like a total, you know, flip in, in beliefs and morals. And and, uh, you know, he's got the answers to that. So so. Stick around. Uh, you guys are going to really enjoy it. I'm really looking forward to it. But before we get to that, um, we have, at least as of the recording of this right now, we have some breaking news. Okay. And uh, the breaking news is that President Biden says that a U.S. raid in Syria killed top Islamic State leader Abu Ibrahim al-Hashimi al-Qurayishi. Qurayishi sounds like a character in, in Mario. Doesn't Mario Kart character? <laughs> It, it does. Kuraishi. Okay. Kind of like Yoshi, except not. Okay. It's like more Middle Eastern Yoshi. Anyway, uh, killed the, a top ISIS the person. Middle Eastern version of Mario Kart. That's right. Yeah. I'm way off. I'm way out of bounds here, but I'm going to keep going. <laughs> I'm just going to keep plugging ahead. <laughs> uh, so anyway, this guy has been killed. Now, there is uh, one problem, though. The problem is a number of civilians were taken out with this person. Um the last I read, and this was immediately when it happened, and yeah. I, I, usually what happens with these things, I'm telling you guys up front, usually what happens is they give you the low ball number early, and then later on they add more. That's almost always how this works. So that's just the warning. By the time this comes out, the number might be higher. But they said uh, 12 civilians or so, including six children and four women, were killed in this bombing. Now, I want to go ahead and give you um, what President Biden said about it. And then you can give me an update that you saw just before we came on air here. But um, here's what he says. Last night, at my direction, U.S. military forces in northwest Syria successfully undertook a counterterrorism operation to protect the American people and our allies and make the world a safer place. Thanks to the skill and bravery of our armed forces, we have taken off the battlefield Abu Ibrahim al-Hashimi al-Qurayshi, the leader of isis all Americans have returned safely from the operation. All Americans have returned safely from the operation. I will deliver remarks to the American people later this morning. May God protect our troops. Uh, so a few things there. When he says, uh, we, we did this mission uh, to make the world a safer place and to protect us, that actually requires evidence. Was there actually some sort of imminent attack that this guy had planned against the U.S.? Um, of course, none of these things are answered or will ever be answered. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, Listen, and maybe on a day like today, maybe the position I'm about to take is an unpopular position. Because usually on the day, like, oh, you get Osama bin Laden on that day, everybody's like, hooray, it's a wonderful thing and everything, right? And to get the leader of ISIS is on, on its face a good thing, of course. The only issue with it is, like I said, you killed a large number of civilians, including women and children. And so what I would pose to you guys is, imagine we had a story where a police officer killed a murderer. But in the process of killing the murderer, they also got six children and four women. How would everybody react to that if this was a domestic policing issue? Right. Like, if you... if you it would not be considered acceptable. If you have a murderer, who we know is a murderer because they killed somebody previously, they storm into a school and take over a classroom. 
okay? And in the classroom, six children and four women, teachers, teachers' assistants, whatever, maybe one of the parents, and the U.S. drone bombs that classroom, killing everybody in there. How would everybody react to that? What would we say? How would everybody react to that? I think we know the answer. Right. But if your reaction is different to on this one, I don't know what to tell you. That means you quite literally devalue the lives of people who are in Syria right. and who might have brown skin mm-hmm. and who you never, you don't speak their language, you don't know their culture or whatever. And I just want to inject that into the conversation. And here's my conspiracy on it is this. My conspiracy on it is Biden's got some terrible ass poll numbers right now and he's not doing anything to make his poll numbers get better. What's one of the first things that people go for if you're a leader and you want to drive those poll numbers up? Some sort of act of war, some sort of an attack, and then look, he gets to go around saying, I killed the leader of ISIS, yeah, that's what I did. That. And that, you know, in theory would drive his poll numbers up. So I, I am fully cynical about what just took place. Well, you've got the Ukraine escalation as well as a good distraction, both for him and for Putin, really, who also has bad domestic numbers, and for Boris Johnson, who may not survive his own COVID lockdown scandals that he's dealing with in the UK. Um, So here's what the official line is from um, the White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. She said that uh, responding to the question of 13 people killed, including six children and four women, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said U.S. officials believe that um, this ISIS leader's explosives killed himself, his wife, and three children. That actually still doesn't even account for all the people, though. Because right, if and you're, I, don't, I don't buy it. You're, you're, even if you take their line, that still doesn't account for all of the civilian casualties. But what they allege happened is that as U.S. forces got close, this person detonated an explosive, a suicide vest, whatever, killed him killed uh, three children and his wife, which, again, is fewer than the number of civilian casualties that we've heard of. But it also reminds me, I mean, remember when they did that drone strike in Afghanistan at the as everybody's leaving the country and they want uh, some sort of revenge, some sort of positive macho headline after our own uh, forces had been attacked and killed. So they drone strike the sky and they do a press conference. We got the bad guy. He was a... We got an ISIS-K stronghold. ISIS-K militant, you know, was planning attacks, et cetera, et cetera. And then you come to find out... Not true. Not true. Not true. First you come to find out there were civilians um, involved. Then you come to find out, oh, because the New York Times actually got the security footage and figured out who this guy was and followed him around through his day before he gets blown up by United States... This was an aid worker, had That's nothing right. to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was actually employed by a U.S. aid a charity in, out of California. And so what we've often found is that whatever the initial spin from the Pentagon is, it usually is way, way, way worse yeah, and in the final accounting, if on, we ever get a final accounting. Shame on the media for uncritically reporting it, too. Because I remember in the wake of Osama bin Laden being killed, every story said... He hid behind a, a woman as they came for him. That's right. And then come to find out that was total bullshit. That was completely made up. So they put their spin on it because that's what they do. And then the media, because they're little sycophants who don't take their job seriously as a watchdog of power, they uncritically report it. And so now they're saying, oh, yeah, 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 some civilians died, but is it really our fault? I mean, this guy detonated the thing before we even got there. Right. Do you really believe that? Stop and think about it just from a practical perspective. Do you really believe that? Is that something that seems likely to you? No, I don't think that's likely at all. So, and then by the way, so he's on a roll today, uh, Joe Biden is, because he also 
um, he was at what was it? The National Prayer Breakfast. Yeah. And at the National Prayer Breakfast, he's he, you know he's stumbling through his speech and he talks about how Mitch McConnell. I don't have the direct quote in front of me. In fact, my computer just died. But uh, he says something along the lines of Mitch McConnell is a good man. I hope I don't get you in trouble here, but he's a good, solid man who's he said always done always right. Always done exactly what you've said. You're a man of your word, and this is the kicker. And you're a man of honor. Man of honor, <laughs> Mitch. McConnell. He also, there was a headline in Mediaite that said he was reminiscing about how well he got along with segregationists to play up the virtue of civility at the National Prayer Breakfast. He cannot get off of that shit. Remember he said that that stuff during the campaign and got like attacked, Cory Booker. He gave like a eulogy at Strom Thurmond shit. Like this guy, and don't get me wrong, I am more than willing, I will ally with whoever on the issues that actually fit my morals and values. I don't care, I will do that. The problem with Joe Biden is, the shit he worked with the segregationists on was segregation shit. That's right. the problem, it was the busing issue. Right, that's, that's so the great problem. that's my issue, if, if it was working with some segregationists because you both want to end the Vietnam War, that's a different question, I'm all in, right? But that's not what we're talking about here, so. I mean, I don't know, how can this guy disappoint any more than he already has? I mean, it would have been worse if the bombing happened and you didn't kill the ISIS guy. Apparently they, we think they got the ISIS guy, yeah, right? as far as what they're telling us right now. As far as what they're telling us right now. But I, look, it, to me, that is not a situation where you decide to press that button. Because I remember Donald Trump's first military action overseas as president. He approved a raid that killed, I think it was a six-year-old American girl. And I remember being one of the only outlets that talked about it. There was an article in, like, The Independent that covered it. Independent's not a U.S. outlet. Like, very few U.S. outlets touched that with a 10-foot pole. Yeah. But I remember talking about that and being incensed and being outraged. This was a raid that Obama didn't approve because Obama said the evidence is, is too slim and, you know, their civilians might get got. Yeah. And then Trump approved it and a young American girl got killed. American citizen. And so apparently this wasn't a drone strike. This was also traditional a, air strike. A raid. Oh, it was a raid. Okay. Yeah, that's that's what the reporting is um at this point. So Can't do it, man. Can't but, kill civilians. Cannot the, do it. And the other piece is that there is so little accountability. I mean, I do oh. have to give credit to the New York Times recently have dug into uh some of the right. numbers yeah, around yeah, yeah. drone strikes, mm-hmm. not only with the one in Afghanistan where it was a ri- immediately sketchy because they wouldn't even give you the person's name yep and they wouldn't answer any questions about like well what was he doing with isis k and who is he um and so that raised a lot of eyebrows and then they actually dug in but they've done a bigger series looking at syria in particular right and how um there were these effectively unaccountable forces that would just they would make up some pretext for a drone strike Mm -hmm. they really didn't care ultimately whether it was civilians or not um they only needed the flimsiest of justification no accountability to the point that there was one that, um, you know, a a sort of uh, inspector general type overseer type of body looked into because one of the operators who watched it happen, who didn't press the button, but who watched it happen, immediately said, I think this was a war crime um, and that we killed women and children. Well, not only when the inspector general's report comes out, not only do they have no relevant findings, they They've sanitized it to the point they don't even mention the location. They bulldoze the site so you could never even go there to gather evidence. So this is the level of the the cover-up and lack of accountability. And even when they're caught dead to rights, like they were on the Afghanistan bombing of that aid worker. These are crimes. This aid worker and his family, I mean, his babies. There's no—nobody was punished for that. They just said it was an understandable mistake. We never would have even learned that fact that now everybody cites— 
right wing and left wing, uh, that over a five month time period in the Obama administration, 90% of the deaths from drone strikes were civilians. We never would have learned that fact if it wasn't for Daniel Hale, the drone whistleblower, yeah. who worked in the program, gave the information to Jeremy Scahill, who ran it in the intercept. And guess where Daniel Hale is now? He's in prison. He's in prison because he showed the American people what our tax money is going towards, massacring innocent civilians. And what about any of the people that massacred those innocent civilians or that none that of them are in jail? The regime. None of them are in jail. Horrible. Regime, no, of course. So, no, look, they all have like CNN contracts and sit on the board of Lockheed Martin or whatever. So I'm look, I'm critical of, you know, countries that have state media and the state media does the official propaganda and everything. Don't get it twisted into thinking that our corporate media system and the structure of it doesn't effectively serve power and serve the establishment because you're watching it in real time right now yeah when you uncritically report something like that like oh the, the, the he blew himself up before the, we killed some him? of the civilians at least and uh yeah yeah not buying it um not good well speaking of, i'll try to make this transition uh corporate media trying to hold on to their power and crush any dissenters outside <laughs> of the clunkiest system. transition of all time <laughs> like death and murder podcast no, comedians <laughs> yeah go ahead <laughs> so Joe Rogan, of course, uh, we don't need to get into the whole story. We've both rehashed it a million times on Breaking Points and on Secular Talk, but everybody gets the gist of it. Joe Rogan's had on some anti-vaxxer uh, doctors, and then there was a backlash as a result of how they spread a bunch of claims that weren't true, and it's potentially dangerous that they're on air. And then you have Neil Young said, I'm pulling my music off of it, and Joni, somebody else, said, I'm pulling my... Now there's a whole, a whole bunch Bruce of Bruce Springsteen's guitarist did it. Uh, yeah, there's a whole bunch of them that are fighting. Mm -hmm. India R.E., <laughs> okay. I, well, anyway, uh, Spotify reacted to that and basically said, look, we're going to put like a banner on the things that have COVID talks that say, hey, here's more trusted information and here's a trusted choice you go to. Similar to what YouTube does when you're covering a controversial topic. They put like a link underneath yeah. if, some, if people want to click on it. So that's how they answer to it. Joe Rogan released a video where he was like, look, um, you know. I'm going to try to do better. I'll try to research more beforehand. Then I'll also try to bring on people that have the counter opinion to the controversial opinion to balance it out a little more. Um, and well, and now also he liked he liked the labeling. He was affirmatively. Yeah, he liked, said he supported the labeling. Yeah. That's true. Um, so now you have very interesting character weighing in somebody who I think we all kind of care what his views are on this. We have John Stewart. This video is a little long, but it's well worth it. He's going to explain what his position is on the controversy. Take a look. I want to know your thoughts on Spotify and Neil Young pulling his music off it. Because, you know, we're on a podcast platform, so it's a little meta. Johnny Mitchell, too. First of all, I love Neil Young and I love Neil Young's music. But the idea that it was worth $4 billion in value to Spotify caught me off guard. <laughs> that's, that's all I'm going to say. I, listen, I'm a, I'm a Cinnamon yeah. Girl fan as much as the next guy. Buffalo Springfield, sure. I'll sing that while watching old Vietnam documentaries. But <laughs> when he pulled his music off of Spotify and Spotify went down, I was like, hmm, that doesn't seem right. I mean, it's value, but I, I, it, 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 that caught me off guard. It's a real bummer when, you know, in order to make your activist ploy for Spotify to stop spreading disinformation, that, like, you, you actually need to call Taylor Swift. But she has spread disinformation as well. She oh. is, she's out there saying that Jake Gyllenhaal is not a stand-up individual. <laughs> and I will say this, I don't even think he has the scarf. I'll be fucking honest with you. He, I don't think- He's worn he the scarf. He doesn't have 
That could be any scarf. No, that's the scarf. Also, okay, okay. Did you see the photo shoot he did with, this, with the scarf? Recently, yes. With the scarf on and her little red glasses, he did a magazine spread. What else can he do? Talking what else can he do? The song. What else John, can he do? I think what, he could do John, nothing. this is the first time I'm going to say this, but mm, listen, mm, I mm. have fought like the online legions for you, but mm. I do not fuck around with Swifties. So you are on your own. Absolutely. Boss. Swifties will find where you live. You know, everybody talks about woke cancel culture and the online mobs. You haven't stepped in shit until you've stepped to One Direction or BTS or Taylor Swift. I don't care if you're a political activist on the right or the left. You have no idea. <laughs> I've, I've, gotten less, I've gotten less blowback from Israel-Palestine than I did for like a One Direction joke. But let me, let me go back to your, your, your original point, Chelsea, which is how do you feel and, and this is gonna be a blanket statement. Okay. And I would say this, don't leave, don't abandon, don't censor, engage. I'm not saying it's, it's always going to work out fruitfully, but I'm always of the mindset that engagement, and especially with someone like a Joe Rogan who is not, in my mind, an ideologue in any way. And I think the, the proof of that was I don't know if you remember, there was a guy uh, who went on his podcast named Josh uh, Zeps, who, who had, they were talking about, I think Joe said, myocarditis, kids shouldn't get the vaccine because it causes a, a higher risk of myocarditis. And Josh said, well, actually getting COVID is a higher risk of myocarditis for kids, so they should get vaccinated. He said, no, it's not. He said, no, I think it is. He goes, mm, no, I'm pretty sure it's, it's the other way. And they looked it up. And when they looked it up, it came out that it's, a much greater risk if you get COVID and you're, you know, eight to 12 or six to 15 or whatever the age range was, it's a much greater risk of myocarditis catching COVID than it is getting the vaccine. And if you are an ideologue or if you are a dishonest person, that is the moment. Like Tucker Carlson in that situation never would have looked it up and would have given that look he gives like somebody's giving him a confusion enema. Like they're just <laughs> like like they're just firing confusion up his ass. <laughs> and Joe just went like, oh, I didn't know. Oh, okay, I didn't get that. And, and that to me says, oh, that's a person that you can engage with. And so mm -hmm. I, I think all the overblown rhetoric about him, and here's the other thing. Like, you're a musician, like how much misinformation is spread by, like Eric Clapton is on platforms that you're on and he's a fucking psycho. <laughs> so do you remove yourself from every platform? By the way, do we only do these conversations so that I will get in trouble? Yes, that thing that's yeah, all we do now is we go, John, who what do you, you want to piss off today? Neil Young fans, you know Taylor what? Swift fans, I, or I Eric Clapton fans? I, I love them all, but my point is, we all exist in this world and on this planet. And there's no question that there is egregious uh, misinformation that's purposeful and hateful and all those other things. And, and that being moderated is a credit to the platforms that run them. But this overreaction to Rogan, I think is a mistake. I really do. Mm. And, and 
Do you think it gives him power to react in this way versus if you actually wanted to say something no. against his? Joe Rogan has power because so many people listen to him. But that and because of the elk meat. Yeah, let, let me go back because you're right, Jay. Jay Rogan has power because of elk meat. And that is what allows him to have the energy to have all the, but he has four hour conversations and they are expansive. And he may say some things that you think is misinformation and he may platform people that you think are wrong, but to single that out as something so egregious as to have to be, I just don't, I think there are dishonest bad actors in the world. And, and identifying those is so much more important to me. Uh, and I also think sometimes those grand gestures of I'm removing myself doesn't necessarily take into account, like you're on Comcast, right? Comcast or Time Warner. So if you're on any cable station, right, they've got Fox News on. You telling me Fox News isn't a willful purveyor of misinformation, dishonest, to its core. So now everybody on yeah. TV has to pull out of their fucking shows or deplatform because on the in the same tube that you exist, they exist. The, one of the biggest questions I always <laughs> used to get asked was, why I do, don't understand that. Why Can do I you have O'Reilly on your show? And I go, well, I have people in my family that are to the right of him and I still talk to them. So why not talk to him? And, and I feel like you have to engage. Like, how do you not engage with mm. people? Like, the whole point of engagement is hopefully clarification. Now, you may not get it. It may be a fool's errand, but I will never give up on engagement. That was fantastic. Yeah, so what do you think of his the, argument? I mean, first of all, I mean, the key thing there, obviously, the entirety of his argument is don't leave, don't abandon, don't censor, engage. And if there ever was a guy who you could do that with, it is Joe Rogan. And they give the example, he gives the example of that guy, Josh Seps, is that his name? Mm -hmm. Who went on and they had this back and forth about myocarditis. And not only did they pull it up in real time and have like a real time fact check, but then... Joe shares that segment himself on Twitter along with additional information. And we had the same experience on Breaking Points. We had a doctor on, Vinay Prasad, right. who went through one of the episodes that was the worst, the uh, Malone and McCullough ones, went through claim by claim and said, here's where they have kind of a point. Here's what's totally wrong. Right. Here's what the studies say. Here's what the research is. And guess what? Joe shared that as well, even though it was disagreeing with some of the content that had been on his show. So it's the silly, I'm so over this whole controversy because it's so silly to act like Joe Rogan is like Kim Jong-un or something like this nefarious evil actor. It's ridiculous when you actually have engaged with his content. So I'm going to, I'm going to tell a private story now. Okay. And I think people will, will like this story. So it wasn't that long ago, maybe a month or two ago where Joe got in some trouble for, he was in a conversation with, I forget who it was, but he argued, Brid Bridget Phetasy maybe it was? Mm, yeah. He yeah. argued against paid paternity leave. Yes. And he did it pretty glibly, and he, he, took, he took a stance. It was very like, this is what I think about this, I don't like it, right? And so you and I saw that clip. Mm -hmm. I did not agree with him at all. So we decided 
coming in to do this show, let's cover that in the intro. I want to play that clip and I want to respond to it. And what did I do? Pulled up all the different graphs. Here's paid time off. Here's how much other countries get. Here's how much we get. We're at the bottom of the barrel. You know, we're like the only developed country that doesn't get paid time off, doesn't get paid maternity leave, doesn't get paid paternity leave. And workers are getting screwed in that sense. I was very clear when we did that segment to lead with, look, Joe Rogan's an honest guy. Joe Rogan's a nice guy. Uh, he's got a lot of views that are left that he never gets credit for. But then whenever he says anything right wing, people always pounce on him. Right. So you lead with that. Then I made the argument. Did you know Joe watched that video? And then him and I were texting about it about a week later. And in a very long and detailed text conversation, he said in no uncertain terms, you convinced me. You changed my mind. I didn't know those, the, the stuff that you showed. And when I was talking on the podcast, I was just talking to another comedian, sort of talking shit, talking off the cuff. And I said something that now in retrospect, having learned more about it, I was wrong. And in fact, he even supports policies that go way further than that. Yeah. Like I was like, I support a four day work week. And he was like, I do too. It's like, well, that's way more time off than just paid paternity leave. <laughs> you're like cutting down the work week so much when you do the math on how many weeks there are and like all the extra days you're getting off. UBI. Yeah. Because there was another thing that we were discussing about unemployment. And he was like, well, what if people are like sort of gaming the system a little bit? This is standard right wing concern. I don't know who we heard it from. Ben Shapiro, Stephen Crowder, somebody like that. Right. right? Crenshaw. And I was like, Joe, I support universal basic income. I want everybody to get like a thousand or two thousand dollars a month. And he's like, I support that, too. So it's like, so you support a policy even to the left of just unemployment. And he's like, yeah, I, I guess I do. And so now the next time paid paternity leave or paid time off comes up, Joe's going to argue in favor of those things. Yeah. That's not possible if he's a dishonest actor, if he's a complete ideologue. And also it, it wouldn't have been possible if you and I didn't believe in the power of persuasion. Yeah. Because a lot of people, and by the way, I saw some of the comments on, on our video. Mm. Uh, uh, of the Joe Rogan one. A lot of them were very one. fair, very, very good. Yeah. But then there were some that were like, look at this, he's going soft on his friend Joe Rogan. Look at him, he won't even do the thing where you're like, what? But not only did what we do work, it worked perfectly, perfectly. Now, Whereas look, if you come in and, and you're like, this guy's evil and he's bad and let's censor him. Like how much is some, is anyone Joe Rogan or anyone else going to listen to you when you're just like out to attack their character and destroy them. And John Stewart's point, I think he made a brilliant point about Eric Clapton, a yeah. brilliant point <laughs> about, about um, Fox news. Well, here about, you can, you can do this deplatforming that. thing till the end of time where, where nobody's did, anywhere. Where did Neil Young go and take Amazon? His Amazon. Amazon, where they, like, they, they, the drivers have to shit in bags. It's like one of the most evil corporations on the Literally. entire planet. Literally. And we're supposed to be like, oh, good job bringing them and, more billions and of others, Like, what? And others are going to Apple. Oh, it's Apple, also... slave labor Apple. Right. Apple, let's put nets under the buildings in the China factory so that people don't commit suicide as they were doing on a regular basis. I mean, it's just, it's completely, it's completely deranged. And I do think that part of where this comes from is like, Rogan is so big now. He's like a th mainstream media feels like both threatened and jealous of him. They don't like that they don't have control over him. They need a scapegoat for how other things aren't going well in the country. I mean, this is just totally invented, silly, absurd controversy. And the other thing about Stewart is he's been on Rogan's podcast. So he has interacted with him and doesn't have this caricaturish view of what the show actually is. Because that's the other thing is like, if you just have heard the media portrayal of what his show is, you'd be like, there's some really, this is terrible. There's bad stuff going on. 
And I would go so far as, I mean, this is not even close to me. If the media was more like Joe Rogan and you were having three hour extended nuanced conversations with the range of guests, some of whom, you know, some of whom are not good, but many of whom are very interesting and have something to offer and it's thoughtful and it's respectful and there's actual inquiry and a desire to engage and potentially, oh my God, have your mind changed. Like if the media was more like that, the whole country would be in a much, much better place. I wasn't texting. I was just doing notes because my computer died. I want everybody to know that. I wasn't disrespectfully <laughs> texting as you were talking. Anyway, um, the main point here, and this one is inescapable. I don't care who you are, what your position on this is. There's no way around this point. Mainstream media pushed Russiagate relentlessly, where a lot of the things they said were verifiably, demonstrably, provably untrue. We know that in retrospect, especially after the Mueller report found Dickie McGee's acts in terms of Russia. They got the, a bunch of people in the Trump administration for corruption, but it wasn't, it, it, there was no, he's Putin's puppet. There's Russiagate. There's the 2008 crash where you had virtually every outlet, especially CNBC, they were acting like there's not going to be a crash, and you're crazy to think there's going to be a crash. And they were spreading misinformation about that relentlessly. There was the Jussie Smollett thing, which every mainstream media uh, organization was all over it when I'm looking at it. And I'm, I'm a leftist, but I'm looking at this like something doesn't smell right, yeah. and I didn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. There's deferred on that one. There's COVID <laughs> stuff where how many things did they get wrong about COVID in retrospect? Mm-hmm. I mean, Fauci saying, Math. you know, masks don't work, and you don't have to wear a mask. And then eventually, when they do say masks work— even after we saw the study that said cloth masks aren't as effective as the other masks, they still were pretending cloth masks were as effective. You yeah. got the lab leak theory where they were it was viewed as a crazy conspiracy theory that no, not terrible. only that, it was racist. It was to racist. Suggest that this could have happened. And then eventually we learned that's either it's it's likely, if not probable, like it's potential. It's a potential, but you well, know. And Stuart, it's in the conversation. Stuart was epically correct on that one. You yes, his uh, when, when he went on Stephen Colbert. And Stephen Colbert got so uncomfortable when he was like yeah. doing the jokes, like uh, this, yeah, this actually, deviates from the narrative. That uh. has just happened right before you and I. The last time you went on with Rogan and Sagar and I went on with Rogan, because I think he played some of it in yeah. our um, interaction. But uh, Stuart is right about that. I've been watching all of his show and listening to the podcast. It's really good. Stuart show, really you mean not Colbert? Stuart, Stuart. yeah. Really good and really well done. He's gotten sharper since he's left. For sure. And he just had on a dude. I actually wasn't sure if I'd be into this episode. It was about like QAnon and like it's called like down the QAnon rabbit hole or something. um, That's on the podcast version of Stewart's show. And he interviews this guy who's a BBC journalist. And he also is a Russia expert. He speaks fluent Russian. And so when the Trump stuff, so Russiagate comes up and when the Trump stuff is all, you know, first new and this guy who's a journalist for BBC is like, oh, I'm perfectly positioned. I have sources in Russia. Like I speak the language. I'm going to beat the American outlets to the scoop. I'm going to be the one to find the P tape. And then he digs in and realizes pretty quickly, like, oh, this is bullshit. This is all total bullshit. Literally funded by the Hillary campaign. And Stewart's there agreeing with him on all of that too. So this guy has, he's good. I mean, he's been right about a lot of things since his new reemergence. His uh, his piece that he did on economics, which was for the full Apple show, where he talks about, like, the demonization of, of socialism and how silly it is and has a great sort of, like, you know, old school Daily Show type montage of all this ridiculousness. School he Janet definitely, Yellen. 
Yeah, School Janelle, he definitely, and, and Jamie Dimon, that one was even better. He's definitely become a little sharper. It's less of this just like, let's all get along kind of a thing that he used to be into and is leaning more into, I think, leftist positions. Yeah, I mean, I his arguments were brilliant. And look, I just hope that more and more you have like leftists lining up on the side of this issue, which is the more reasonable side, in my opinion. I hope that something breaks the fever of the lefties who are like, for whatever reason, insistent that Spotify does need to go further. By the way, what does that mean? If you want to deplatform them, just say it. Just say it. But you know what's going to happen? Even if you succeed on that, Joe's going to immediately go to Substack, Rumble, fill in the blank with some oh, other outlet that wants to happen. Uh, yeah, and he doesn't need Spotify. Even, so let's worst case scenario for Joe, if that happens, what you lose ten percent of your audience, fifteen percent of your audience. I think he'd have more. I mean, possible, he, he, but right? he's not. He's not cancelable. So why are we even having this conversation? Again, I just want. Look, all I can ask for is this, and credit to Dr. Prashad who did it. Prasad or Prashad? Prashad. Prasad. Okay, credit to him. Credit to, I don't know the name of the guy, but Sam Harris had tweeted a video that one guy breaks down either Malone or McCullough's claims in a long, I don't know his name, but it was a long video where he goes through the claims. Credit to these people. This is the response to Rogan when it comes to McCullough and Malone, because listen, I actually agree with the criticisms on that front. Mm -hmm. Those guys are wrong. They're flat out wrong and they're spreading anti-vax hysteria and it's untrue. And so why all this noise and all this air suck, being sucked out of the room with the media, you know, implying that they want to censor. If you just start fact checking the fucking podcast in a clear, concise, accurate way and rig- do rigorous work, then it, you wouldn't have this and problem. Stop pretending like this is the biggest fucking problem in the country. I mean, I saw Jen Psaki. I'm sure, sure you saw this. Yeah, she got go asked. Further. She got asked about, you know, this whole thing with Rogan and what do you think of Spotify's response? And she indicated that they should, quote, go further. And I'm just thinking, like, first of all, if you're that reporter and you have this, like, precious ability to ask the powerful one question. I know, right? And you ask that. I mean, how about if you're if you're worried about COVID and you're worried about people not getting vaccinated, how about you press them on the fact that they lied about trying to help lift the patent protections to yes. the developing world? Yes. I mean, you would do so much more good getting the developing world vaccinated than than obsessing over whether Joe Rogan is right or wrong on his one podcast, which has, you know, probably minuscule impact on the vaccination rates in this country. I mean, how about the fact that we still haven't gotten tests in this country? I mean, they totally screwed this up. So the idea that this is the, the major issue that we suddenly need to rally around, it's so incredibly silly to me. I just literally can't wrap my head around it. And where are the calls to your point of like, Rachel Maddow's on all of these platforms with her with her podcast. Where are the calls to censor her and label her for misinformation? Because God knows what she's done. Joe Biden has the authority to sign an executive order with an emergency declaration to temporarily expand health care to all Americans, either the ones directly right. affected by COVID, or you can even go further if you want. Just say it's a national emergency. It's going to cover everything. He has the authority to do that. If you're a journalist and you want to hold the powerful accountable, Ask about that shit. Why haven't you done that? Why haven't you done one-tenth of that? Why haven't you lifted a finger when it comes to healthcare policy in the middle of a global pandemic yeah. that's been raging for two years yeah. where we have probably over a million already dead, officially like 850,000 or whatever right. it is? I mean, for the love of God, instead, you ask about Joe Rogan and the response from the White House is to say go further, which effectively means, yeah, we want to deplatform him or censor him. Well, now you're even talking about that might actually be against the First Amendment to have government officials 
it's prodding private companies. Idea. We don't like that. So you got to get rid Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> yeah. Are you and fucking kidding hundreds me? Hundreds of thousands. A lot of people have been looking at the fact, um, rightly so, that the U.S. has had a much higher death rate from COVID than other countries. Um, hundreds of thousands of those is are because we don't have universal health care. I know the so, exact number, by the way, because of a report from public. 330,000. 33% of the COVID deaths are attributable to what's called uninsurance. So, hey, if you care about people dying from COVID unnecessarily, which I think we all do, maybe that would be a more fruitful line of inquiry than whatever Joe Rogan's doing on his exactly. podcast. All right. I think that about sums it up. Yeah, Let's go ahead. Ben just wrote an article about it, so I want to talk to him yeah, about no, it, too. <laughs> right. Well, I want to get his thoughts on it as well. Yeah. So. But so let's bring in uh, Ben Burgess. He is host of Give Them an Argument. He's a columnist for Jacobin Magazine. He also is the author of a new book called Christopher Hitchens, What He Got Right, How He Went Wrong, and Why He Still Matters. Let's bring him in now. Ben Burgess, great to see you. Yeah, good to see you again, Crystal. Yeah, so we were just talking about the whole thing with Rogan, the artists leaving, Spotify labeling, Jon Stewart's take, all of these things. And I saw you have a new piece in the Daily Beast of all places um, where you write progressives who want Joe Rogan off Spotify should be careful what they wish for. Um, and the subhead is weakening free speech norms and making it easier for tech CEOs to suppress misinformation will not work out well for the dissident left. Explain, my friend. Yeah, well, I i mean, it seems pretty straightforward to me, although judging by my social media timelines, not to a lot of other people, uh, which is that these platforms aren't controlled by like leftists, right? These platforms are controlled by billionaire CEOs who have every reason in the world to A, want to stay on the government's good side, uh, and B to not want their wealth to be redistributed, uh, which is, you know, which is certainly, you know, like kind of the main thing that, you know, that we want. And so I think that if we, we could free speech norms, if we make it easier to crack down on so-called misinformation, that's not going to go well for us because people will say things like, oh, sure, I don't want to censor opinions, but you could censor people for being wrong about facts. But every political argument is at least partially an argument about facts, right? Does raising the minimum wage really increase unemployment? Uh, how many people really are killed by, you know, by drone strikes or civilians? And so both sides always accuse the other one of, of you know, spreading wrong facts. And the people who get to decide are ultimately going to be accountable to these billionaire CEOs. I mean, I just give one small example in the, in the piece that I think makes the point, which is imagine a world where podcasts and Spotify already existed in 2002, who do you think would be more likely to get the censorship hammer for misinformation? People who agreed with the government, who agreed with the New York Times that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, or people who said that like Bush administration officials were conspiring to mislead the public about it? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's like a sort of a debate ender point right yeah, there. Yeah, the perfect point. But so let me play devil's advocate for a second. And it's sure. tough. It's tough for me because I, I'm like one million percent in your camp. But how do you respond to the people who say, listen, I'm tired of hearing the free speech angle to this because this has nothing to do with free speech because it's a private company that we're talking about, not the government. Yeah, I'd say that if you're a right-wing libertarian, that makes perfect sense from your point of view. Right. If you're a leftist, it makes no sense. That's that, right, you know, yeah. that the, the same way we wouldn't say if you work at Walmart and you don't like the working conditions there and you don't think you're paid enough, don't like, you know, 
demand union representation to higher minimum wage. Just go find somewhere else to work because it's all freedom of association. You know, like like you don't uh, you don't have to work there. They don't have to employ you. You know, whatever. Uh, we we understand that the government is not the only source of power that can be problematic in our society. So one of the other uh, things that you bring up in this piece is you cite this move on petition where they want Rogan to be completely banned from Spotify and they accuse him of being a white supremacist. And so this gets into a whole other issue. Something I've taken issue with is there's this very caricaturish view of who Joe Rogan is. If you just listen to the media interpretation of what his podcast is, you'd think every guest was an anti-vaxxer. That it's like white nationalist anti-vaccine hour on Joe Rogan all day, every day. What is the reality? Why why does why do liberals in particular, but some elements of the left as well, want to sort of push him towards the right wing camp and say, oh, this guy's just a right wing <laughs> propagandist? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, so in the the piece, I mean, I like run through a lot of, you know, some of the most obvious pieces of counter evidence here, uh, like the fact that in 2018, when the Trump administration uh, instituted its, you know, child separation policy, uh, that Rogan had this like two minute rant that I linked to where he says that if you don't have a problem with this, you're not on team human. Uh, in the next year, he had uh, Cordell West on, which he said was one of his all-time favorite episodes of the show because because uh, West is brilliant, which is a position I don't hear a lot from white supremacists. And, <laughs> and yeah, and, and, and also let's not forget, right? I mean, who who is you know? I would I would think you know I don't know. I mean, like if if you were a if you were a white supremacist, unless you're so you know, like, unless you're so far off the grid in your white supremacism that you're, you know, that, like, you don't want to support anyone, you know, you, you think it's all the Jews or whatever, like, they have, if you're going to support a mainstream candidate, presumably it would be Trump. I'm not saying everybody who supports Trump is a white supremacist, because I don't think that's true, but I would think that would be the white supremacist candidate. Uh, Joe Rogan supported Bernie Sanders in the, uh, in, in the, uh, the primaries, which also doesn't seem very, you know, like, like a very white supremacist thing to do i think that the more honest thing to say about rogan's politics is that he's a little bit all over the place that uh i wrote an article with michael brooks about this actually with that sanders endorsement controversy happened um for uh, for jacobin and and i think that i think the truth is that if you watch and listen to a lot of joe rogan uh he has a mixture of guests with very different views who he often sometimes just out of friendliness and sometimes because it's his his idea of how you should be a host. And like sometimes I think out of genuine agreement. Right. You know, that like, you know, there's a lot of like, oh, yeah, man, good point, you know, from uh, with a wide range of figures. Although I would point out that some of the most memorable times he's pushed back against people have been like Dan Crenshaw or Dave Rubin, you know, who Steven Crowder. With- Steven yeah, Crowder, yeah, yeah. Candace, Owens. Candace Owens. Yeah, that's right. That was his biggest disagreements were with those people. Yeah, so so I think that it's it's kind of crazy that people assume he's a right winger. I I think the reason, as far as I can tell, is this: Why is it that right wingers who actually disagree with Rogan about more subjects than the left disagrees with him on uh, are so willing to claim him and say, "Oh, Joe Rogan is awesome. That's our guy." Whereas um, even when he endorsed Bernie Sanders, you know, there there were a certain number of you know 
again, mostly more mainstream liberals. A lot of it was like bad faith supported by, you know, supporters of other candidates. But even some people on the left were like, no, 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 no. We don't want the world's most popular podcaster, you know, to, uh, to support our guy. And I, I think that, I think a lot of it, what it gets down to is whether you really believe that you can win, whether you see politics as a realistic project to change the world or whether you see it as kind of taking a symbolic moral stand against everything that's wrong with the world. Mm. And, and I think a lot of people on the left in practice, unfortunately, are taking the second view, which means that if you, if you have 10 positions and seven of them are pretty closely aligned with you and, you know, one of them's, you know, ambiguous and a couple of them are bad, then you'll like laser in on the bad ones because you think, Oh, the question you're asking is essentially like, is he a good person who's going to go to heaven like us? Or is he like a bad person who's going to go to hell? And like, that's like, Oh, well, whatever, you know, here are his sins, you know, that like, here are the bad positions rather than is there important overlap here such that like, why not play up, you know, when he's when he's pushing back against, you know, Candace Owens? Like, why not play that up? Why why is it that like more progressive media didn't, you know, trumpet that clip and you know was like, you know, you know, do little segments, you know, Joe Rogan destroys Candace yeah. Owens, you know? Well, like, I did, I did. You're preaching to the choir here, Ben. Um, that's an insightful point, though, about why. Yeah. The left's yeah. inclination is to just find the flaws and judge them rather than trying to pull into a coalition and use the powerful platform he has. So to your point, yeah, he's had on Cornell West, Bernie Sanders, me, Abby Martin, David Pakman, and he's also had on the likes of Steven Crowder and Ben Shapiro. And he's had us on like a number of times. And I remember having a conversation with somebody about this at one time. And I was like, well, what's the connecting tissue there? And the connecting <laughs> tissue from Joe's perspective is that in his judgment, these people agree or disagree with them are honest and authentic. Now, I don't happen mm -hmm. to agree with his perspective on that because I don't think Ben Shapiro or Steven Crowder are honest or authentic, but that's his reading of the situation. And yeah. it's pretty clear to see that that is his reading of the situation. So... Wait, you guys have matching. You have a Starbucks Workers United oh. mug. And <laughs> oh, you have nice. Shirt. Yeah, Sorry, that's awesome. I just had to yeah. call that out. Um, so, yeah, yeah the, the harshest criticism one could give if they're looking at this fairly, in my opinion, of Joe is that, yes, he's sort of apolitical from time to time, or he views himself that way, so he's wishy-washy in a certain sense. Uh, he's open-minded, which is a good quality on the one hand, but he could also be open-minded to a fault. Um, he could, he's sort of an enlightened centrist with some left-wing views and some right-wing views. But yeah, to the broader point, I think the breakdown is the left used to have a stance of, like, we believe in purity of policy. So we have these broad goals that we're pushing for, like universal health care, um, you know, free college, ending the wars. Like there's a purity of policy that made up the left, that constituted the left. Now that has transferred to we care more about purity of character, which I, I, I couldn't care less about purity of character. We're supposed to be the people who say, <laughs> I don't care if you were a murderer and you were reformed and rehabilitated in jail. If you were really reformed and rehabilitated in jail, you deserve a second chance. Now we say you had a blog post in 1994 <laughs> that was slightly <laughs> offensive, so you're kicked out of the club. So I don't know what well, led to that uh, breakdown, that's, that's, but you could speak on that, Ben. Yeah, and sometimes people literally believe both at the same time. I mean, that they're no, like, that's right. Very you know, common. It's a they're, war they're, on they're, nuance they're is like, what it is. That's what it drives me crazy, Ben. It's a war on nuance. It's like you're with us all the way or not at all. And again, not on policy, on personal character, which is so weird to me because personal character is so arbitrary. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, 
look, I mean, do I care about, you know, do I care about somebody's personal character if I'm like their friend? Sure. I have a, uh, do I, uh, do I care? Do I care from the perspective of trying to change the world? Not very much. And there are a lot of people who, again, somehow are simultaneously doing both that they're like, you know, that, that they, they want, you know, either they're, I mean, there are people who are like prison abolitionists who still think that um, like people shouldn't get jobs because of stuff that they tweeted as teenagers. And <laughs> like, that's, you know, I've, I've, I've met, I've met a bunch of people like this. And, and like, if you think, right, which I actually do that the U S I mean, I'm not a prison abolitionist, but like, if you think that like, the U.S. criminal justice system is way too punitive, that, like, we're way too retribution-happy, that even, like, rapists and murderers, you know, like, should uh, should get less harsh penalties, which I absolutely do. I mean, I always point out, like, Norway has, like, the maximum punishment you can get for anything is 21 years. Okay, sorry, that's not true. For genocide and war crimes, you could get 30 years. But for anything else, it's 21 years. It's like the absolute maximum. Mm-hmm. Anders Breivik is going to get out of jail at some point. Wow. Uh, and they still have like a way lower crime rate than us because they, they have a more economically equal society. And I think that like I think that that's something to aspire to. I think that like we are too retribution happy. I think that like even people who've committed seriously heinous and awful crimes like should get a second chance. But I don't see how you could possibly reconcile that in your head with to go back to Rogan, right? Like after he endorsed uh, Bernie Sanders, people were bringing up like doing these little clip montages Mm -hmm. of all of the worst things that he'd ever said over the course of like, at that point already, what, like 20 years of doing the the Joe Rogan uh, experience. And yeah, if you have spent hundreds of hours, you know, thousands of hours, I don't know, podcasting, he does a really long form podcast uh, you know, by his own admission, like some of those hours high, uh, then like, I'm sure that you're going to say a certain amount of stupid shit over the course of that time. It would be amazing if that weren't true, but like, you're, you're literally saying, Oh, like one of the, one of the things that made it into the, like, there's always in these clip montages is this, um, like racist joke that he makes about watching uh, planet of the apes and people never even include, like, literally two seconds after he tells the joke, he's like, you know what? I shouldn't have said that. That was kind of racist, wasn't it? You know, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, guys, right? You know, so it's like you have, like, a moment of, you know, I mean, whatever. I mean, I don't, I don't think you should, you know, say racist things. But, like, you have a moment like that. You immediately realize that you shouldn't have done that. And, you know, and, and, and like, decades later. Right. You know, that's fair. You know, decades later, that invalidates everything else yeah. that he says or says or thinks. And it's, it's ridiculous. And like you can even say, look, I do think that Rogan says a lot of stuff about vaccines and related subjects that is like really importantly wrong. I think that he I think that he's been convinced that like it's a you know, it's a bad idea for you know, young people and certainly children to get to get vaccinated. And I think he's just wrong about that. And I, I don't think it's out of the question that someone, you know, that like there could be people who make bad decisions because they're, you know, because they're influenced by his worst views. But I guess beyond the sort of question of Joe Rogan as a person, which I think is complicated for all the reasons we've been talking about and also should not really be the main issue for all the reasons that we're talking about, I think that they, 
if you're talking, if you're thinking about what the free speech norm should be, if you're thinking about what the con- like what the consequences are going to be of like better or worse free speech norms, then this should not be the only thing you're thinking about because if they make rules, those aren't going to be rules just for Joe Rogan. Those are going to be rules for everybody. Yeah. And and whatever small effects he has on vaccine hesitancy, which I actually think is pretty small. Like my friend Branko Markadic is from uh, New Zealand, and he points out that like. Look, New Zealand successfully enforces like way stricter COVID rules than anything we've had in the U.S. And like you can just look it up. Joe Rogan is like the fifth most listened to podcast in New Zealand. Like lots of people in New Zealand listen to him. But that doesn't seem to be having this huge effect on how COVID has played out in that country because because I think that there are structural factors that are just much bigger than what a podcaster who spends a certain amount of time talking about COVID and a certain amount of time talking about politics and is probably at least as interested in psychedelics and mixed martial arts and half a dozen other subjects as he is in those things, yeah. whatever influence that guy has on people. Yeah, I mean, the much better approach is what Kyle did on his show and what you did just now and what you know we tried to do on Breaking Points. We actually had a doctor on who went point by point through some of the claims that were made in the Peter McCullough and Robert Malone interviews and said, okay, what's the truth here? What's the reality? What do the studies actually say? So like, actually, if you've got an issue with it, just talk about it. And rather than making it this taboo topic, which just feeds into what those people want you to believe that, oh, you can't, you can't have this conversation. It's being censored. And this is all a big pharma conspiracy, which listen, there are plenty of big pharma conspiracies. This just doesn't happen to be that one. So, I mean, that's the right way to engage with it. Let me ask you though. I I would, I would, I would also just really quickly point out that they have a, that, um, that maybe that video that you guys did was okay. This didn't happen, but because of the level of censorship that already exists on this topic, you know, I look, this is not something I get into on my show much because like, I just know that I don't know very much about it. Right. Like all I really have to say is like, I'm not an epidemiologist. I kind of tend to trust consensus of people who are, but, um, but people, but other people I know who, who do engage with it a lot and do put out videos debunking, uh, conspiracy theories about COVID constantly get their videos removed or demonetized yes. because they're, yeah. they're using right. keywords. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, at breaking points, that's a reason that we leaned more into like a subscriber based paid right. subscriber based model because yeah, because we didn't want to be subject to the whims of YouTube algorithm or taking us down or demonetizing. So I got a story about this. Yeah. I, uh, I've thoroughly covered Alex Jones over the years on my show. And in a recent segment talking about Alex Jones and how he lost by default the Sandy Hook cases, I went to go grab all of the stuff that he said on Sandy Hook to show, look, here's all the stuff he said about Sandy Hook. And then he claims, oh, I didn't say that stuff about Sandy Hook. Yeah, we have the videos right of it. But YouTube pulled down my video, which shows Alex Jones for what he is. And then has me responding and saying, look at this terrible stuff he's saying. He's wrong about it. Wow. And so now it's like I wanted to, in that segment, play those clips, say he's lying when he said I didn't say it, and like debunk it. But now I can't because debunking is treated just as bad as the original sin. Which is like, so stupid. it's beyond stupid. It's like Jordan Chariton goes to the January 6th right. Capitol riot. He gets on the ground reporting, showing what's going on. Not because he supports it, but because he's documenting it for his history's sake and doing his job as a journalist. And then what ends up happening? He puts it on his YouTube channel. YouTube pulls down his own video from his own channel. At the same time, Jordan licensed that footage to CNN, MSNBC, all the big networks, and they're able to run it scot-free. Like, what are we talking about yeah. here? It gets back to your point that... 
the people who are going to make the decisions are not people who are like some objective truth body. No, they have their own biases, their own, you know, misinterpretations, their their own issues. So who's going to fact check the fact check? Zero democratic accountability. Zero democratic accountability. Uh There's nobody, there is no such thing as a ministry of truth. Who's going to watch the watchmen? And then who's going to watch the watchmen who are supposed to watch the watchmen? That's not how it's supposed to work. And I should also say that if anybody is like watching or listening and they think, oh, okay, well, I agree that it's dumb that the YouTube algorithms end up like, you know, cracking down on people who are trying to debunk the very things that the censors are trying to get rid of. Uh, But that's okay. I'm not that, you know, I support smart censorship, not dumb censorship. That's not going to exist. That's not on the table because (laughs) – like, what do you think? Like, YouTube's going to spring for, like, like, like paying some, like, giant army of people to, like, really carefully go through these and spend enough time watching and thinking about every single one that, like, they're, they're actually, like, making good decisions and not, at best, doing the manual review where you glance at the title for 10 seconds? I mean, like, that doesn't sound very profitable to me. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And again, even if they did that, still no democratic accountability in that sort of a system. Even if you assume like they're willing to put the money in and they're make it a priority and they've got good intentions and all of that, people have biases. These are, you know, these are capitalists who ultimately care about money and their censorship decisions are going to reflect that matrix. Think of what happened during adpocalypse. There was like some Nestle ad or something that ran on a white supremacist channel. YouTube's response to that was, we're just going to defund all of news and politics overnight. So, like, these are the people that you trust to go through stuff with a fine-tooth comb and be reasonable about it? Yeah. They please. panicked, and they were like, just defund them all. And it lasts. I don't remember how long it lasted, a week or two, and it was terrifying. That's what they do. Ben, I wanted to also get your thoughts on the other sort of cancel culture hot topic right now, which is um, Whoopi Goldberg's Oh, my God. Comments. Okay. <laughs> Which I'm sure everybody has seen at this point, but just to recap a little bit for the audience, they're on The View, they're having this debate about this graphic novel about the Holocaust that I think was pulled from a school list in Tennessee, and she makes this comment kind of out of left field that's like, but, you know, the Holocaust wasn't about race. And her fellow panelists are like, yes, it was. It was about race. It was about white supremacy. And she's very adamant. No, it's about uh, humanity's cruelty to one another or something like that. Then she goes on Colbert to try to clean this all up and basically just ends up making it it becomes very clear that she thinks of race in this uh, very American specific black, white context. And if you can't see race by the person's skin color in her view, this is not racism. And so that's the point she's trying to make. And so she basically makes the same point over again on Colbert. The network suspends her for two weeks. She apologizes. And so that's kind of where things are. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on that whole sequence of events and her comments themselves. Sure. I I find it really weird when uh, liberals, progressives, sometimes even leftists, get into these huge arguments about like exactly how we should think about race or um, like, you know, all of these like sort of strange classic, like, you know, taxonomy questions, the sort of like are Jews, white people, you know, are Spaniards POC, you know, like (laughs) it's kind of like, okay, we, we do all remember that there's no such thing as race, right. That this is like pseudo scientific. 
Literally, like, there's no such thing as race. That's right. Yeah, literally, there's no such thing. I mean, this is this is like pseudoscientific bullshit that was made up to justify slavery and colonialism. And and there is like this isn't like a meaningful biological category. It's it's not even really a meaningful you know sociological category because like you could say sure you know like you know black people in the United States disproportionately suffer from everything that's bad about contemporary capitalist society as part of the economic after effects of our system of apartheid up until the 60s. That's all true. But also, like, look, who's suffering more from all of those things, right? Like a very poor white person or Whoopi Goldberg, right? I mean, the question kind of answers itself, right? You know, like there are sociologically no less than biologically, there are, more, there are bigger differences within the so-called races than there are between them. So I, I, I just find this question of like, oh, that wasn't about race because like, that's not a real racial difference, you know, between white people and black people. There are no real racial differences, right? I mean, there's like skin color difference or whatever, but like, you know, if we had some weird classification scheme where we thought it said something really important about people, whether they had blue eyes or brown eyes, you know, then like we could have all the same dumb discussions and, you know, are green eyed people, you know, are those really blueies or brownies, right? You know, but like, I don't, I don't <laughs> think, I don't think it would matter, you know, and I don't think this matters either. I guess my main thoughts are one, I will admit to feeling a little bit of schadenfreude because Whippy Goldberg is exactly the sort of person who would go on about like toxic birdie bros and shit like that. But then uh, the other thought is that what I really get out of it, you know, because I don't care that much about the underlying controversy itself, but I think the one kind of important thing for people to get out of it is that if you think liberals are way too censorious, which I do, that's kind of what we spent the first part talking about you really shouldn't miss that any right-wingers who object to this are just being opportunists about this. The right is is actually, I think, in some ways much more censorious. And so, so like, true. That's a great point. So true. You know, they're acting, they're acting exactly like the most canceling libs over the Whoopi Goldberg thing. And also, if we sort of broaden our horizons beyond, like, you know, these kind of, like, attention-grabbing celebrity cases and think about, like, what are the sort of biggest attacks on free speech of any kind going on right now? And I would argue that like all of these like McCarthy laws to fire teachers, mm. uh, all of, you know, all of the laws that are proposed in like, you know, Republican state legislatures to like legalize running over protesters with your car, you know, yep. like, like I, I think, the I think BDS oh, laws, that's right. the anti, anti BDS laws, my God. Right. I mean, that that's like, you know, I, I think, you know, like literally like the state penalizing peaceful protest, like the most like peace, the most peaceful non-confrontational protest tactic you could possibly have, you know, which is just that like you're not going to spend your money on something and you're going to encourage other people not to. Uh, yeah, I, I think that these I think you have to say objectively, like these are the biggest free speech, like, you know, the most egregious attacks on free speech going on in our society right now. And they're all coming from the right. And I know when I say that, what some people will say in response, like on the left is like, oh, okay. So like, look, why should we like, why should we care about free speech when it's, you know, the Rogan thing or whatever, right? Like whatever the, whatever the thing, you know, the kind of censorship they want this week is, you know, isn't that like unilateral disarmament? And I think exactly the opposite is true. I think it's because the right is going to be super censorious whenever they think they can get away with it, that I think that's exactly why we have to, we should want free speech norms to be stronger instead of weaker because we're going to need them. 
Yeah, that's also true. And I always talk about with social media, to me, the answer is regulate them like public utilities, expand mm. First Amendment protections, treat them like the public square. That doesn't mean people could, you know, do direct threats of violence or targeted harassment or dox or do sure. libel or slander. All that stuff is illegal. So it would still be illegal if you expand the public square. But you want to lean as much on the side of free speech as humanly possible. And even in the realm of the areas where we typically think liberals are more censorious, even in those realms, that's not necessarily the case because Trump is launching his new social media. And I just covered the article the other day. He's like, all right, bring out the censors before we launch day one. And they're going <laughs> to ban people who troll. They're going to ban people who do all sorts of stuff. I covered the story. They went into detail about it. They literally have AI bots that are doing it. They contracted with a company whose main job is censorship to, to censor on the non-censorship social media site. You know, my you know pillow my guy. Favorite. Yeah, the that's My Pillow my guy. One, Mike, Mike Lindell. Lindell. He's like, all right, so we're going to launch a free speech network. And by the way, no take the Lord's name in vain, no nudity, <laughs> no this. It's like, what are you talking about? So, but I want to get back to the race point real quick. I want to get back yeah. to that because there is a little bit of nuance to inject into the conversation yeah. because sure. how people interpret race is definitely real. And I think everybody sure. on the left and liberals yeah. all, all agree with that. But the counter argument should be the counter argument to the racists is like you said, because it's factually accurate. There really is no such thing as race. It's this like social construct that's evolved over time. And history proves that. I mean, there was a time when Irish people weren't considered white. Right. They were actually there's literature uh, from white Protestants in the U.S. that, that uh, say that they're, you know, below the Negro effectively. That the Irish are like the worst kind of Negro. Right. Yeah, you know? it doesn't. It, I think if we're just talking about skin tone, it doesn't get any whiter than that. It, right. Exactly. Well. And you know, my my people, <laughs> let my people go. My people were considered POC. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, still no, are, no, according no. to Alyssa Milano. Remember when she tweeted that Dr. Jill Biden would be like the first Italian American first lady or something like so that? funny. <laughs> like the Cuomo, the Cuomo's probably gen genuinely think like it's because we're Italian. Yeah, All they this do. Because they we're do Italian. think that. Uh, they almost said it. I'm loud, like this is just our culture. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's like it's like it's like uh it's like you know. Livia Soprano with the flashbacks telling young Tony, oh, they just go after the Italians. You know, that's, really <laughs> that's right. Where they do the whole like Christopher Columbus thing. Why are they coming after Christopher Columbus? Didn't you say your mom didn't like the show? <laughs> yes, my mom My mom caught up with the Sopranos relatively recently because she wanted to see the new version. And I asked her, because I think it's one of the greatest shows of all time. And so I go over to, ha to her house to eat dinner. And I'm like, so what'd you think? And she's like, you know, it's okay, but I don't like the way they portray Italians. I'm like, it's a mafia show. Like, what do you expect? It's a mafia show. Of course, they, of course, they're gonna do this. Amazing. Yeah, I, I, I did. I just want to say, like, look, I mean, I think the distinction you're drawing is exactly the right one, right? Race isn't real. Racism is very real. Right. Yes. Uh, you know, and, um, but like, look, I mean. Witches weren't real, but that doesn't mean witch burnings weren't real, right? You know, right. That, that, that's, yeah. you know, that's, I think, a pretty clear uh, distinction. But, like, I think where I get confused about these debates about what counts is like, oh, you know, is this really race? You know, what what really counts as race is that it's it's the approximate equivalent of, like, of, like, atheists sitting around trying to decide, like, which version of Christianity is, like, you know, real Christianity. Like, yeah. presumably, from an atheist perspective, none of them. Right. Yeah. yeah. Very good point. All right. Let's talk to you, Ben, about your new book, um, which I read, which I really enjoyed and got a lot out of it. Uh, the title is Christopher Hitchens, What He Got Right, How He Went Wrong, and Why He Still Matters. And just give for people who aren't really familiar with Christopher Hitchens or only just know like one phase of his life, could you just give people a sort of broad overview of 
how he started out and his evolution up until his death. Sure. So uh, Christopher Hitchens uh, was a left-wing British writer uh, who was involved in like radical socialist politics back during the kind of revolutionary ferment of, you know, 1968 and when all that kind of went into retreat, uh, he, you know, started focusing his energies elsewhere, but he was still, uh, he was still very left wing. Uh, he would still call himself a socialist up through the end of the nineties. Uh, and he came to the United States in the early eighties and got a job at the nation magazine where, you know, he worked, uh, up until, like end of 2001, early 2002, I think. Uh, and uh, for much of that time, what he was really focused on was being this like really like savage and effective critic of American foreign policy that he, uh, he would write a lot of the eighties, for example, about uh, the Ronald Reagan back in these like, you know, dirty wars in Central America. Uh, that was, you know, that was a big focus of him. In the 90s and coming up to 2000, 2001, he wrote this series of, of kind of uh, books where he would attack iconic figures, um, in all three cases correctly, in my view. Uh, so he, he wrote one uh, on Mother Teresa, which is the one that sounds funny to most people because, like, Mother Teresa is somebody everybody remembers as, like, the sort of embodiment of saintly self-sacrifice, and he makes this... A uh, powerful case in that book that she was anything you know, but that she would, uh, you know, lend her authority, you know, moral authority to like palling around with the Duvalier regime in Haiti. That she seems to have had these really twisted views about suffering being good for the soul. So you know, she didn't like use proper you know anesthetics you know with dying people, uh, and um, and one attacking uh, Bill Clinton when it was much more rare for people to go after Bill Clinton that hard for the left. And uh, what attacked Henry Kissinger, which was which was like the last kind of one in this uh, this series called the Trial of Henry Kissinger, that gets into his war crimes around the world and uh, and his involvement in things like overthrowing the democratically elected socialist president of Haiti, Salvador, she's uh, of Chile, Salvador Allende. Haiti is also a place where the United States has removed many elected leftists, by the way. But you know, so it's not a it's not a terrible <laughs> mistake. But Aristide, uh, right? Aristide. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Aristide. Um, and uh, kind of multiple times, because I think there was a green light essentially to the first coup against Aristide, but then in 2004, uh, Bush actually sent Marines to remove him from the country uh, and sort of made this weird claim later that he'd left voluntarily, which, you know, and he was like, no, they, they literally kidnapped me. Uh, you know, and that's a particularly amazing example, by the way, because Aristide, like, was this very moderate reformer. Like, his initial campaign slogan was that he was going to raise the Haitian people from misery to poverty, uh, which, you know, gives you some sense of how little it takes, you know, in within this sort of zone of American influence to get that treatment. So Christopher Hitchens is somebody who for most of his life is a very savage critic of this, which I think is confusing for a lot of people to hear because people who maybe only know a little bit about him, what they remember him from is the era in which he was best known for two things in the 2000s. Uh, one of them, the main one, was being this very outspoken militant atheist, one of the four horsemen of new atheism, uh, Sam Harris and Daniel Dennett and uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, and doing all these debates with you know pastors and Catholic bishops and people like that. Uh, and then the other one is that he was taking horrible foreign policy positions in the 2000s, 
And so one of the reasons that I find him so interesting, one of the reasons that I wanted to write about him is, be, you know, because, you know, it's it's been just over 10 years. It was 10 years in December since he died. And, you know, I figure enough time has passed that the sort of like rawness of the betrayals wore off a little bit. And maybe people could think about this more dispassionately. But it, it, it is like there is something really shocking about that transition. If you're just kind of looking at it at that view from 10,000 feet level that like like the overall shape of his career because it just seems like there's this giant reversal between where he is in the 70s and 80s and 90s and where he is in the 2000s. And I think people on the left, I mean, look, the subtitle of the book, right, is how, you know, what he got right, how he went wrong and why it still matters. It's, it's how he went wrong, not what he got wrong, because I think if it's 2022 and you still need to be convinced that the war in Iraq was bad, I probably can't help you. Right, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I think that... I think the how is really interesting because I think a lot of times people on the left sort of fall into this thing where we we act as if everybody in the world like secretly agrees with us and like everybody who says that they aren't just must be a grifter you know they must just be like taking right. you know, yeah. <laughs> taking the you know the money or something and I think that's I think that's kind of dangerously wrong I say dangerously because I think it makes it harder for us to understand and engage with uh, like opponents if we if we make that assumption. And I think in Hitchens' case, I do think he, you know, is a well-intentioned guy who started a lot off with a lot of premises that all of us would agree with. And so it is interesting to see how he could kind of go from there to this kind of catastrophic wrong turn. Yeah. You see, this book actually hits really close to home for me because when I originally got into politics, it was both through uh, Chomsky and leftism, but also through new atheism. That's what got me involved in politics and the world more generally. But yeah, secular talk, right? That's right, yeah. And But interestingly enough, Hitchens always appealed to me the least. Um, I think his book was God, God Is Not Great, I think was his book, had the yellow cover on it. I remember reading that and not liking it nearly as much as I enjoyed uh, Richard Dawkins' book, Dawkins The God Delusion. Good, yeah. Yeah. Um, so he he was he always appealed to me the least, but yeah, when you learn about his his background and his history, how he was like a very you know militant, unapologetic socialist for much of his life. Um, so here's what I would say, and tell me what's correct about this narrative and what's wrong about this narrative. But when you look at Hitchens, um, you know, many would argue what happened was his commitment to unapologetic atheism in the wake of 9/11 led him to believe that, like, the ultimate right-wing ideology, the ultimate fascist ideology is political Islam, is, like, fundamentalist Sunni Islam, jihadism or Wahhabism. And he was, he was so obsessed with that issue that he viewed everything through that prism. And so that's how you got the justification of, like, you know, the West needs to genuinely be humanitarian and do these interventions and topple all these tyrants who are, you know, millions of people are suffering underneath the boot of political Islam. So we need to go liberate these people. But yeah, ultimately, when you look at that, you know, objectively, you see that is a total reversal from the positions that he was taking, you know, back when it was the Cold War. So it, it, you think my breakdown of it is is fair there? Uh, I think part of it is. I think that it's I think that it's definitely true that during his new atheist phase, uh, and, you know, probably before, because, I mean, I don't, it's, it's a little hard to say with some of the earlier writings, but I talked to his brother, Peter Hitchens, uh, who is kind of a funny figure, actually, because in some ways he's, like, exactly the opposite of Christopher, that he's a, he's this, like, 
deeply religious guy who's also sort of a paleocon isolationist but uh, <laughs> but uh peter hitchens told me that he thinks that like the militant atheism is probably christopher's most consistent view over the course of his life he said probably for about the age of 11 uh onward and i i think that i think that it is true that during the new atheist period certainly that he talks about islam in this way that i think is way too essentialist uh, meaning, you know, kind of going back to the point about, you know, race, that, like, it's sort of, you know, clumping everything together and and sort of saying that, like, the actual, like, causal reason why these things happen is because of bad beliefs in Islamic theology, um, which which I think is just is just wrong, because I think that, like, I mean, basically my, I mean, we could argue about the details, but basically my big picture bias is that I think that things happen in the world mostly because of material conditions and that like religion and other ideologies are used as a, as a justification uh, for that. But, you know, within these, like these, these religious traditions are huge and complicated. You can find things in them to support almost any point of view that you want to. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so uh, so I think it is true that he was way too essentialist about Islam, and I think everything you say about his view about you know the wars of liberation and all that stuff is is basically right. I think that one thing that I would caution people though about sort of assuming that hostility towards Islam was like kind of like the determinant factor, right? I mean, like like people on the left will talk a lot about Islamophobia. Look, if you want to say you know, Christopher Hitchens like wildly overestimate the realistic threat that Al Qaeda style terrorism actually poses to Western societies. He absolutely did. I don't think that was particularly unique to him, but you know, that's uh, but he certainly did. Uh, and if you want to call that Islamophobia, I won't fight with you on that. But I would say that it is interesting to see that the first war where he sort of starts to warm up to the idea that the U S military could be a force for good in the world is not actually a war where we're bombing Muslims. It's uh, the 1990s when the U.S. is intervening on the side of Bosnian Muslims against Serbian uh, Christians, mm. and then again in sort of the second act of that in 1999 in Kosovo. So I think, you know, I guess my take on what happened here is there are two strands. There's like a foreign policy strand and a socialism strand. And on the foreign policy strand, I think in a post-Cold War world, it seemed to him that the U.S. was starting to fight very different enemies that it had fought before, right? Like that so much of his like kind of hostility and moral outrage about, you know, in the stuff he was writing like in the, in the eighties was about the Reagan administration supporting these like right-wing authoritarian kind of death squad regimes. And I think that he starts to look out at what's happening in the nineties and more so in the two thousands says, look, you know, if if George W. Bush were fighting wars against like communist peasant revolutionaries like LBJ was in Vietnam or you know Reagan was in Nicaragua, I have I don't I there's no doubt in my mind that Hitchens wouldn't have been able to bring himself to support that. But you know, he would say, look, if you think about so Slobodan Milosevic, Saddam Hussein, the Taliban, do these forces more closely resemble the kind of people that the US was fighting before, or do these forces more closely resemble the people that the U.S. was backing before. Right. And I think, you know, I think he thinks that the latter, I mean, sometimes literally they were actually exactly the same people the U.S. was yeah. backing. And, and, and then I think, like, so I think that's part of it. Then I think the other part is over the course of the 90s, I think he really, like, kind of gives up hope about socialism that, you know, even though when he was a far leftist, he was a Trotskyist, he wasn't a fan of the Soviet Union. And I think while the Soviet Union existed, it was still easier to believe that these 
big questions about how to structure a society were still kind of on the table for political debate. And in the 90s, they just that just seemed to be over. And and I think that people oftentimes, I'm going to sound like I'm 100 years old here, but like I think oftentimes people who sort of been radicalized the last several years kind of don't realize just how bad the 90s were politically and uh, and just how pervasive that sense that like it's over some kind of liberal capitalism basically won. All there is to do is sort out the details, how pervasive that was. And I think there's a certain point where he really kind of gets like caught up in that atmosphere. And he even kind of admits in his memoir, his 22, that looking back on it, he thinks that it was just kind of stubbornness that was keeping him going for the last few years that he was still saying he's a socialist, and all that stuff. Cause on some level he didn't, he increasingly had a hard time believing that this was still on the table at this stage in history. But it was like every time he went on C-SPAN, Brian Lamb would ask him, Christopher, are you still a socialist? He kind of, you, huh. you know, he didn't want him to win, you know. <laughs> uh, but like I think by 2001, before 9-11, actually, this book, Letters to Young Contrarian, he's admitted to himself that he doesn't think this is on the table anymore. And so my take on how he gets where he gets is that, okay, he spent so much of his life as this kind of globetrotting journalist visiting places like Saddam Hussein's Iraq, getting to know dissidents, you know, spending time after the first Gulf War, which he opposed, spending time in Iraqi Kurdistan, talking to Kurdish leaders, who for some of them, as Gene Bajalan points out to me, had been 70s radicals themselves, they could speak his language, and they, for obvious reasons, you know, wanted the U.S. to take care of Saddam Hussein for them. And, you know, so he cares about people who are living under these despotic regimes, so if he thinks socialism is off the table, he at least holds out hope for, like, democratic revolutions, and this is exactly the point of this chain of reasoning that I can still sympathize with it. Where I get off the bus is that I think out of desperation, because he doesn't see any other vehicle for making this change happen, he convinces himself that like the American empire could be a vehicle for democratic right. change in these well, societies, what, which I think is just kind of insane. Like that doesn't part, make sense. That's a part that's really interesting is on the one hand, you're charting a sort of cynicism about, well, any project of like a different economic order is dead. It's not going right. to happen. Not in my lifetime anyway, which, you know, end up being correct. I do wonder how he would have reacted to the, the rise of the Bernie movement. So on the one hand, you have that kind of cynical reaction, on the other hand, you have this very sort of naive, idealistic reaction of thinking like, oh, now the U.S. is going to be a force for good in the world, mm. so let's support these like humanitarian missions and get on board with their democratic regime change project. And so it's sort of, it's interesting to me that those two uh, directions could exist in one person. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of Peter's take, that it's like he thinks it's just sort of displacing the utopianism into this new thing. Uh, I, I think that I would say that um, in some ways both are kind of products of the idea that the United States and the sort of vision of, like, you know, liberal capitalism it represents has just kind of, like, won and is going to be the overwhelmingly dominant thing in the world now. I think could both lead somebody to underestimate the potential for for change, for like something new emerging, and also lead them to overestimate America's ability to remake other societies, which is which is really the thing that I think like the last like 20 years of all this stuff has proven that even putting aside the intentions, like how much is it really true that the American government wants democracy in Middle Eastern countries, that would say it wants it to the exact extent that's convenient for American interests to no further, right? That the, uh, you know, if you look at like the U.S. policy in like Egypt, for example, right, it's not very pro-democratic. Uh, but 
even putting aside the question of intentions and even putting aside the question of, of morality, I mean, I think that the thing that should really emerge from looking at the history of these wars in, you know, Iraq or especially Afghanistan is that the United States just doesn't have the capacity to remake these very different societies in its own image, that that's, you know, like we spent like, you know, 20 years and trillions and trillions of dollars and, you know, and, and just constant fighting in Afghanistan to try to do exactly that. And the, uh, and the result was that like, we couldn't even prop up a government that could last five minutes in the absence of American troops. That's <laughs> not to say that there could never be social progress in Afghanistan or that I wouldn't love it if there were, you know, democratic revolution in Afghanistan. I think governments don't get much more evil than the Taliban, but I just think it has to come from inside the society. Yeah. And this, I mean, this was always one of my problems with Christopher Hitchens is that certainly, you know, in his later life, which is what I'm more familiar with him with his later work than I am with his earlier mm -hmm. work. So that, that was my bias anyway up front. But um, the issues with the whole premise, this idea, and this is an idea that I think Chomsky attacks better than anybody else, this notion that, like, in order to take the positions he took on foreign policy, you have to concede that you think effectively the U.S. owns the world and international law doesn't apply to us and we're the world police. And I just think it's this colossal fallacy to, you know, assume that we're altruistic and we're uh, humanitarian. And it's also he he was always really glib and flippant whenever somebody would challenge that. And it's like you haven't really built a, a, a an interesting or intriguing case for that perspective. And that was one of the things that got under my skin the older he got and the more drunk he was, we should say, because he was drunk like 24-7 by the time he was older. Um, you can't just be glib and flippant and straw man your opponents all the time and just call people idiots, you know, like that. I didn't see it as witty or charming. I saw it as like mm. intellectually lazy and sloppy. Yeah, uh, the uh, yeah, I, th I think that the role that the, the drinking uh, does or doesn't play here is interesting. I will say that um, whereas it is true, like there is like an essay he wrote in Slate in like uh, the, the final years where he was called on the grape in the grade where he's like, look, people think I'm like drinking way more than I am. Like, and he sort of goes through like, you know, he sort of goes through when he's drinking. And I've got to say, right. I mean, look, I, I, you know, I like whiskey too, but reading this is like, hmm, that kind of sounds like a lot to me. Right. You know, I, I think that, he was know, visibly he's... drunk, like th through every appearance I saw within the last, like, you know, for, forget the cancer part and that part, yeah. even pre-cancer, he was visibly drunk for like years every time I saw him. And it wasn't even close. Like you could see the glassy eyes, you could see the redness, you could hear the slurs. It was always, or slurring of speech, not literally saying slurs, but right. yeah, like you could see it. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I, I think he, you know, I mean, I think he did, you know, like, definitely overdo that. I think it did contribute to his early death. I would say that I think that like a lot of people, um, you know, a lot of people who drink as much as Christopher Hitchens, you know, don't, uh, don't make political reversals like that. So I think sometimes people <laughs> over, over, yeah, no, no, like, just to be clear, I, I wasn't blaming that. Neocons. I, I wasn't blaming <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. that. My point that was that on, like the warning label on bottles of Johnny Walker. Yeah. That, <laughs> may turn he, you into a neocon. My point was that, and I don't even know to, to what extent it sure, was the sure. alcohol versus just him, but like just the, sure. the glib nature and the flippant nature where you get the, he's yeah, yeah. not thorough in responding to arguments in the later part of his life. It's very dismissive of anybody who sort of disagrees with him. Yeah, I think there are certain subjects that is very focused on, and I think I think his critique of religion. I think you know, like he has, I think that like there's a certain kind of left wing anti imperialist view that he is. Uh, he doesn't 
he sort of loses patience for engaging with, which is a real shame because the people that he's like kind of least interested in taking taking them and their arguments seriously in the final years are the people who are actually the most correct about what they were uh, what they were arguing about, you know. So so I think it's a uh, I think it's a little bit of a tragedy there, and I think that by the time you know he dies in 2011. I mean, this is where the same stubbornness that maybe had good effects in the 90s has very bad effects. I think, like, even if you believed what he believed, which as far as I can tell, I think, like, on a rock in a weird way, I think his position is, like, the mere opposite of mine because, you know, when I was in my early 20s and I was going to anti-war protests all the time and organizing anti-war protests, my point was always it doesn't matter if there are weapons of mass destruction or not because even if there are, right. you know, the, the, the war right. would still be unjustified. Thank right? you, you know, Ben. That's, you're the first person I've heard say that other than me. So I really appreciate that. Because, like, even if it was true, right? I mean, the premise that the uh, the premise that like Saddam Hussein was going to share these weapons with his mortal enemies and Al Qaeda never made sense. Or bomb and, Cleveland or some shit. Like, that's not <laughs> happening. No, no, it's definitely not happening. And also, like, okay, look, granted, just because you're hypocritical doesn't mean you're wrong, but like, it's also a little rich for the only country that's ever used atomic weapons in the history of the uh, the world to uh, to invade another country because they might be developing weapons like that. Right. Uh, you know, so, uh, so whereas, like, I think Hitch's perspective was exactly the opposite. I think he also didn't care about the WMDs, but that's because what he was uh, – he was really focused on was the idea that this could be a war of liberation. It was going to spread, you know, democracy and human rights. And I think that the the point you were making about international law, I think in a certain way, right. And I think it, it is like a little bit too simple reasons I get into the book to say that he was like an across the board neocon in the last years. I think some of his positions on Palestine and torture and other subjects. Iran too. He had a soft spot for Iran. Uh, don't really fit with that, but you know, he certainly agreed with them on kind of the most important thing that was going on right then. And I think that, like, it's possible that in a weird way, he sort of skipped straight from, from you know, having this kind of left-wing anti-imperialist disdain for that system of international law that, like, oh, this is just propping up the interests of powerful countries or whatever, uh, to having a sort of neoconservative disdain uh, for that same system without really stopping at the point of saying, okay, but wait a second maybe it's really good for the world if we have these structures in place that, you know, that, that this, this is going to lead to less like bloodshed and chaos happening. Yeah. So Ben, to kind of, to kind of wrap things up, what made you want to write the book right now? Um, you said something earlier about how you think it's important for leftists not to just make this blanket assumption that really people agree with us. And to the extent that they're airing disagreements publicly, it's because they're on the take, they're a grifter, they're they're bought and paid for, whatever. Is that part of why you wanted to delve deeply into Hitchens' trajectory and how he ended up where he ended up? Yeah, that is definitely part of it. I think that like this question of how he ended up where he what where he ended up is. Um, is something that I was always like very unsatisfied with the kind of explanations I would see of that uh, from from other lefties, and and I did want to delve into that, and I did hope that like kind of the fact that you know we're at the ten year anniversary, that so much time has passed, that would make people more open to like thinking about this in a way that wasn't just sort of clouded by the immediate sting of betrayal of like oh my god how can you take these terrible positions, which I agree they are terrible, but you know also. 
you know, he's dead now. And so, like, whether we think that Christopher Hitchens was a good guy or a bad guy isn't really the main issue at this point, right? So I think that the uh, – I think that I did want to think about that topic. And and I also I also wanted to just kind of, like, work through some of my own mixed feelings about the guy because I do still think that, one, his pre-9-11 body of work is very good. And a lot of those books that I mentioned earlier are ones that I think kind of deserve to be brought back and read – uh, and two, uh, in certain kinds of left media, this is not a very cool thing to say right now because, because everybody, you know, sort of seems to have decided that like, you know, that like, it's, it's just like the whole religion thing is just a hopelessly lame preoccupation, but I do still find some of those debates that he was interested in, in the last years of his life, interested and compelling. And, per, and maybe especially because of the time that I was writing it in that like, this is coming, like, writing, writing the book, kind of coming at the end of this year where, um, you know, Michael Brooks dies, you know, uh, my closest friends and professional collaborators, where I spent the year inside, you know, because the pandemic, where, you know, there, there have been other, you know, personal tragedies we don't to get into. And, and so I, I kind of find this idea that, like, oh, these questions about religion and atheism are just kind of boring, right? It's passe. I, I don't know. I think that like these questions about like, does anything happen when you die? If the answer is probably not, which I think it is, uh, like, how do you kind of deal with that? You know, how do you try to you know, be a good person, you know, like in the kind of absence of this you know, foundation? I think those are questions that I still find pretty interesting. And, and so for both of those reasons, I still find him a really compelling figure and maybe more interestingly, because I think that there are things that he just got disastrously wrong. Yeah, that I mean, beautifully said. And I think those questions are actually inherently interesting and people who act like they're not have not thought deeply about it for a second or um, haven't allowed themselves to entertain that. So I think that's a really interesting point you make. Uh, and I also like how you, you, you mentioned mixed feelings. And yeah, that's another thing that I've noticed. It, I sort of had a light bulb moment as you were talking there. There really does appear to be, at least it, maybe it's a modern era thing, maybe it's a social social media thing, but People have like a war on mixed feelings. Like you're not allowed yes. to have mixed feelings about stuff anymore. You have to be like, it's all or nothing with every single figure. And it's like, that's just stupid. Like you're allowed to think like, I like this part here, but I don't like this part here. Like the world is a complex and nuanced place. And it's much more interesting if you dive into the complexity and dive into the nuance and parse it out as opposed to just lumping everything into the bin of like the good, good or, the bad. or bad. It's like a very sort of right wing. Yeah, it's essentialist. Yeah. It's like, essentialist yeah. to use your word from earlier. Yeah, it's, I mean, this is like the moral, the right wing, like moral panics of the, the 90s or this very simplistic black and white good versus evil dynamic. Yeah, no, I think I think that's exactly right. I think that like there is this thing that I think social media has probably made a lot worse. I think it existed before then, but I think it's made it a lot worse where people are very, very concerned with sorting everything into the good bin or the bad bin and deciding who the good people are and who the bad people are. And like people will use like, you know, both sides in and both sidesism, you know, as like ways of dismissing things, which is I think it's kind of crazy because like Look, are there things that are so cut and dried that, like, it would be obscene to, to like, criticize both sides equally? Of course there are, right? You know, the, yeah. you know, workers and bosses, you know, drone pilots and anti-war protesters. But also, there are lots and lots of things that people argue about, but where, like, you have multiple sides that are kind of wrong. And you also, there are also tons of things that come up where somebody, 
might be wrong about one thing and right about another that like if if i have um like this is this is something i notice a lot just in you know i don't want to get too sort of you know political media subculture bubble because i don't know how interested that is but like i think that um you know like this is something that i noticed like in the last like year that like when like i go on different shows that have like live chats going on while i'm on there like depending on the show I will get people who are absolutely convinced that I'm um, that uh, that I'm like a liberal shill who loves the Democratic Party. <laughs> and I will also get people who are absolutely convinced, you know, who will say say things like, oh, he's like a Glenn, Glenn, Glenn Greenwald apologist. He made excuses for the January 6th rioters, you know, and it's <laughs> like the uh, and, and it's like, I don't know. I mean, like, am I like, like, is it OK to just say that like sometimes in these debates between people who I basically agree with about bo- most things, that like sometimes one re- group of people makes a good point about something and sometimes they're wrong about something else. Like that seems like that should at least be possible. Yeah, and you're that's the thing that people don't allow anymore. Yeah, and I, it's so annoying because you, you know I you could be. I never experienced that, Ben. I don't. Get, I don't get that at be, all. I've thing, never been accused of basically like collaborating with Hitler on my show. <laughs> the thing that gets me is you can be as clear as possible in your speech and with your concepts, and you could just nail it in so far as you think you can nail it, and then still somebody could just take it and just. You know, right. make a mess of it and just be like, this part, you think this. And it's well, like, I didn't fucking say that. Right. Like, what do you do? I didn't totally say that. Over, <laughs> totally oversimplify it and then apply some sort of like label to it. Like right. the whoopee thing is a perfect example. People like package that up and now ergo, because whoopee said X and Y and Z, she is an anti-Semite, period. <laughs> like uh, anything she said or any apology or any nuance or any larger conversation, it's done. Anti-Semite, dismissed, you're done. So. Yeah, I, I I always wonder too. Like you know, it's like look, I don't I don't particularly like Whoopi Goldberg, but like um, as as somebody you know who um, I, I don't I don't think I'll shock anybody when when I when I say that part of my family is Jewish. I think that's a surmise that people have made before. Uh, the uh, uh, certainly like right wingers on Twitter are going to make it a lot. Uh, that the I I think um, you know I don't know. Like anti semitism is bad. Anti-Semitism is really bad. Anti-Semitism deserves to be harshly criticized. Um, you know, I would say that, you know, if, if they wanted me to call it Ukraine instead of the Ukraine, they should have been nice for my family. But they, uh, but, uh, but like, I wonder how seriously you can take anti-Semitism as a problem if everything is anti-Semitism, you know, like, like, like if any time somebody makes a comment on anything having to do with you know Jews, Judaism, Israel, anything that like strikes you a little bit the wrong way, or that you think isn't quite sensitive enough in the right dimension, that that's anti-Semitism. I mean, it just seems like look, if we're really like fighting, like if we're really slicing it that thin, and we're fighting over scraps this tiny, how how seriously could you actually take anti-Semitism, like the re- like real anti-Semitism, as a problem? Yeah, good. That's a great question for Dave Rubin and Barry Weiss. <laughs> That's what I would say. Anyway, Ben, thanks so much for joining us, man. We really appreciate it. Um, the book is really interesting. People should definitely get the book. And yeah, we really had fun, man. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. Right. It's always Th- great to chat with you. All right. Thank you so much. Absolutely. All right. So that was Ben Burgess. Um, you know, this is interesting because it it hits close to home for me because of how I got involved in politics, mm. you know, with Chomsky and new atheism at the same time. And so to 
have a like a comprehensive book on Hitchens, which um, talks about his pre-war on terror era yeah. and post-war on terror era. Era? Era? Yeah. Hard to it's, say terror era. <laughs> terror era, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, really, it's really fascinating to me. Uh, Christopher Hitchens always appealed to me the least out of the four horsemen of new atheism. Um, but admittedly, I didn't know much about his pre- what was War your sentiment towards him at that time? Because you, when you sort of become aware of him and are engaging with him mm-hmm. most, he both has views on atheism that you more or less agree with and views on war and terror that you totally don't agree with. Um, so my view on him was I didn't like his book because I did, for whatever reason, the writing style didn't mesh with me. Mm. It wasn't the way Dawkins wrote meshed with me a lot better. Yeah. Than, than the way he wrote. I like Dawkins, but and, I do. I had read other Dawkins science books, right, so yeah, I already yeah, yeah. liked mm-hmm. him. That's why I, right. his was the first of these books that I read because I already liked his other stuff. Yeah. Uh, and I I got the sense he had one of he had maybe one of the most devoted followings at the time mm. of all the different New Atheist people. Um, but yeah, I mean, by then he was already at the point where he was getting kind of sloppy in my opinion. Like he just was... I have no problem with like the you know shutting people down, owning, calling people idiots, and all that stuff. In fact, that's part and parcel of what we kind of do here, in a sense. But um, he would skip all the steps before you get to the ownage point, like, right. and he would just go right to like you're a fucking idiot. It's like <laughs> you got to engage with the argument. Yeah, first. and he he was just too. It just it, he just wasn't my cup of tea. Now there were times when he makes an argument that you wholeheartedly agree with, you get a little kick out of it because he's so forceful with it. Like I remember I saw. You know him talking about circumcision, and I was just like, "Yes, <laughs> really?" Because he's now he's one of the only people that were like, <laughs> you know, it's kind of fucking crazy. They were cutting off the tips of baby dicks, you idiots. And I was like, "All right, on that one, you're the man. Thank you." <laughs> but like, you know, in, in other ways, it just didn't appeal to me that much. And and later in his life, he became so much about like the war on terror is good, and we gotta do the Iraq War, and that it just it just didn't just didn't land with me. It's interesting because another point that Ben makes in the book is that even in his book on Kissinger, which is very good, um, he has this little bit of naivete about the U.S. and the international order. Like, he actually thinks and is pushing for Christopher Hitchens to be held criminally accountable. I mean, for uh, for Henry Kissinger to be held criminally accountable for his crimes. Right. And so it's interesting that it's just it's hard for me to imagine going from the positions he had that were so scathing and skeptical of U.S. power and really understanding the damage that's being done in the world to like seeing it in this very benevolent way. You know what it is? I think he actually touched on it there. The per- if the perspective during the Cold War was, look, these interventions that we're doing, they don't work. If that's your main perspective, so it's more of like an efficiency thing than, than it is a first principles thing, then you can see how that goes awry. Chomsky was always, he would always go back to the first principles. Like, let's question whether or not the premise is right. Do we even, do we have the right, being one nation among like 200 nations in the world, do we have the right to just go and topple people and say we're the world police and ignore international law? in theory, to uphold international law. Right. He would go all the way back to the to the first principles and, and the premise of it. And you get the sense that with Christopher Hitchens, it was more of like, hey, the stuff we're doing is bad, and it doesn't work to make the world a better place. So if that's your only objection, then as soon as an intervention comes along that you think might work to make the world a better place, you'd be like, okay, I don't see a problem with it. Yeah. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I guess that's part of how he ends up there. Um, ben is just such an interesting guy. I always get a lot out of his columns that he writes at Jacobin. This one that he wrote on Rogan is really good. And he's been very clear thinker about the free speech stuff and um, unafraid of making clear-cut arguments to the left of why the idea of censoring this person or that person, whether you personally like them or not, or whether they've said things that were wrong or incorrect or even damaging or not, is a, a bad direction to go on. So I always love getting his thoughts there as well. Yeah, and the more voices on the left that take that position, the better. Because remember, that is the original lefty position. Yes. And the it was always understood that anybody advocating for censorship, no matter what you want to censor, it is by definition authoritarian. That's right. authoritarianism. Even if you say it's nominally, I want to censure the right people for the right thing. Yeah, we're going okay, to do a good authoritarian. But then you're a left authoritarian, <laughs> which is a thing. Yeah. That's a thing. There is such thing as a left authoritarian. That's real. And, you know, uh, in terms of, like, the right-wing politicians and leaders who are totally hypocritical on this stuff and just, you know, they want to, they don't care about free speech. They care about having control over who gets censored and who gets canceled. That's their real issue. But I will say there are people who consider themselves on the right of the spectrum who buy into the language that's offered by those Republican politician elites about censorship. And then if you can point out to them, like, well, here's some instances over here. They don't happen to fit in your ideological bucket, but it also is censorship. I think there is an opportunity among a larger population that are not the elites that are on the right of the spectrum to engage with them on free speech and make it more of a principle and less hypocritical. Well, I mean, look, that's what I would say to the people, the people who agree with, oh, you shouldn't, you guys shouldn't be banning right wingers or anybody off social media. The people who really believe that position and they're on the right, I would say to them in a very straightforward way, you are taking a left wing position. If your position is let's effectively nationalize social media or let's at least regulate it like a public utility, therefore expanding First Amendment protections, which is the only way you can do it, by the way. If that is your position, welcome to a left-wing position. That is a left-wing position. It, the, and as Ben pointed out, the right-wing libertarian position is, it's just, it's a private company. They got to do, they what, they do what they want. They can do what they want. So right. it's like, okay, if you, and I, you know, a lot of people who are Democrats or left in other ways then make that argument with a straight face. And it's like, okay, if you want to take that argument, fine. That is a right-wing uh, right libertarian position. That's a, like a you know total free market, hands-off, no regulation type approach. Yeah. And it's like, okay, but just own that that's what it is, because that is what it is. So just admit that that doesn't fit with the rest of how you view yourself ideologically, because it doesn't. Yeah. I think that's well said. So check ahead. out the book, guys. Uh, I really enjoyed reading it. I got a lot out of it because um, I also hadn't read as much of his earlier work about the Clintons, about Mother Teresa, about Henry Kissinger. Uh, those are books like... you should definitely read, too. Yeah. So earlier. I read I read the Kissinger one oh, you did? Okay. as part of his research. Yeah, which is very good. Um, anyway, the book is Christopher Hitchens, What He Got Right, How He Went Wrong, and Why He Still Matters. Highly re recommend it to you guys along with all of Ben's work. That's right. And uh, please subscribe on Substack, Crystal Kyle and Friends. $5 a month gets you the video of the show a day early, and you get the wonderful newsletters from Piper. And for everybody who doesn't want to pay the $5 a month and subscribe, just go ahead and sign up on Substack for free, and then you'll get the audio of the podcast as soon as it drops, which is a day later. So anyway, we love you guys. Thanks so much for everybody who is a paying supporter. You make this possible. We take $0.00, .00 from advertisers. We love you guys. We'll talk to you soon. See you all next week.